Good evening, good evening. Well, we're going to start Pillow Talk very soon, but we've come on early just to help people tune in a little bit. And uh, just as a bit of a pre-show, I'm going to share an article from uh, tonight's uh, distinguished guest, Professor Flint. Uh, and the article reads, uh, New South Wales under dictatorship too. Uh, and this is part of Professor Flint's weekly um, show, Take Back Your Country. And he's now done 45 episodes on The Good Source. Uh, the latest outburst of the Wuhan virus in New South Wales and extending into other states appears to be the result of the New South Wales government ignoring warnings and leaving limousine drivers for airline crew unregulated. Who paid the consequences? Not the New South Wales Berejiklian government and certainly not the responsible health minister, Hazard, who quietly changed the law about limousine drivers with a stroke of the pen after lockdown began without any prior checks or balances. And if we're all in this together, why don't politicians share in the pain and forego all salary over 2500 a week? Instead, the people of Greater Sydney, which now includes most of New South Wales's population, will pay. And like the East German Stasi, the New South Wales police are, with the Premier's blessing, building up an army of informers. These are not to inform on misbehaving or incompetent politicians, but rather on other citizens who do not follow to the letter the latest laws. One regulation even forbids browsing in shops. So don't check on that fruit before you decide which to buy. And you must go shopping alone. People living in Fairfield but working outside, most of them, have to be tested every three days. After a full day's work, many had to queue for over eight hours on the first night to find the testing station closed. Yet according to many in the commentariat, the New South Wales Premier was, when it came to dealing with Wuhan, the gold standard. No more. The dreaded QR code is everywhere, despite warnings by respected computer law expert Professor Graham Greenleaf, maybe that's Greenleaf, of its many dangers, including potential identity theft and government abuse. In the meantime, the West Australian dictatorship hints that the border may be closed permanently, contrary to the constitution which Canberra shows no interest in enforcing. It is hard to have confidence in a Premier who believes Australians are no good at manufacturing, but then imports ferries which rust and are of a size which will decapitate passengers when they go under bridges, as well as trains too wide to fit into existing tunnels. This is a government which, instead of buying modern trackless trams, bankrupted dozens of businesses, wasted a fortune and took over four years to lay a tram track down George Street. According to ICAC, after 10 years, the government has still not implemented all of its recommendations to protect against the corruption risks involved in lobbying. These should have been in place had two curious operations proceeded until increasing public outrage stopped them. They were the sale of extremely valuable city land on which the Powerhouse Museum stands following its transfer to flood-prone land at Parramatta or the expropriation of cemeteries well run by the Catholic Church. And notwithstanding the disaster of privatising compliance with building standards by developers which resulted in jerry-built home units, the government insisted on privatising land regulation registration. What is most damning is that the Premier presides over schools where neo-Marxists seem free to indoctrinate and abuse children with standards constantly falling below those of comparable countries. And why does her government's energy policy seem as if it were written by the Greens? Why was abortion law reform never mentioned in the election, presumably to increase abortions and initially proposing just a touch of infanticide in relation to babies who survive, allowed to be a priority issue? But as regards Wuhan, all the evidence shows that large lockdowns on the communist Chinese model do not work and are enormously destructive of businesses, careers and lives. 
the last model you would have thought any coalition or indeed Labor government would use. Welcome to Pello Talk. Let's get started. May all that you stand for and that we stand for be preserved under the providence of God for the happiness of mankind. The trouble is caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old and outworn machines. But it is the values of individual liberty, equality before the law and the supremacy of people over the state to which we can always with confidence return as a powerful and uniting force. Australia is not a secular country. It is a free country. Well, good evening and welcome to Palo Talk in this very special episode about constitutions and conventions. We are on the brink of the LNP State Convention in Queensland, and that happens in the middle of July, roughly every year. And uh, this year is no exception. However, this year uh, is a year where the number of attendants is said to be much higher than recent years, which have seen significant dwindling. Numbers have been dwindling for a long time now because the grassroots members are rather bored and feel frustrated by the waste of time it is going. Well, this week, uh, outgoing Member of Parliament, George Christensen, uh, who is serving his last term, basically let loose and, and said what he really thinks about the party, no longer uh, able to face disendorsement by them for the rest of his career. You thought he was blunt and honest before, well, now he's well and truly off the leash. So he uh, released a statement and we published that in a podcast, an article on The Good Source. I won't read it for you tonight because we're going to let him speak for himself. He was uh, unable to join us tonight, but spoke to me earlier to uh, tell me all about that article. Uh, so please uh, welcome to Pello Talk, George Christensen, member for Mackay, uh, Dawson, I'm sorry, the seat of Dawson. Talk, George Christensen. Thanks for uh, taking the time to expand a little bit further for the uh, Pillow Talk live audience. Thanks, David. Uh, pleasure to be on your show again. Now, something I'm particularly passionate about is empowering authentic conservatives, authentic Christians to actually participate in party politics. Um, certainly anybody who wants to participate in the other parties should do, but I think one of the best chances we've got of um, regular mums and dads and people with a full-time wage outside of the call to politics making a difference in the future of our nation is being involved in party politics, participating and helping pre-select uh, better members. Um, in one hand, what you've spoken about on Facebook uh, this week and um, and has been reported widely in the media has both confirmed and turned that on its head. Um, you've you've basically said that the the party machine is a law unto itself, um, which I think means all the more reason to make sure we're in there helping to pre-select um, good people of, of conscience and conviction who won't be taken captive uh, by the status quo or, or the trends and whims of society. But at the same time, so much of the rest of party life, uh, branch meetings and the state conference, 
um, actually seem to be at the moment uh, almost a waste of time. Mm, well, uh, if you've probably hit the nail on the head with that last uh, statement. Look, you know, for the purposes of your listeners and your show, David, I guess that the most uh, critical thing that I could talk about is the President's Committee and how it has actively gone out of its way to stop Conservative and Christian people from joining the party. And you know some of these people that I'm talking about. I mean, Lyle Shelton was one of them. We've lost Lyle Shelton to the Christian Democrats. He is now a New South Wales Upper House member. Um, the person who headed up the Australian Christian lobby barred from entering the LNP. Uh, he is but the tip of the iceberg. I've, I've had uh, person after person after person who is conservative or Christian come to me and tell me that the big wigs and the president's committee have barred them from entering the party. It is just plain wrong. And this is mm. endemic because I also know of a pro-life activist, a very well-known pro-life activist, I'm not going to name her, uh, but, but she was trying to be, uh, she's a party member already. Uh, I'm not sure whether she still is a party member. I wouldn't blame her if she's not because she wanted to run for pre-selection for a state seat. And she was told by the party bosses that they couldn't possibly allow her to run for pre-selection because she was too pro-life and that's not the direction they wanted to go in. Well, a newsflash to these faceless men and women, uh, you know, the overwhelming majority of the LNP rank and file is conservative, Christian and pro-life. Uh, these people shouldn't be blocked from coming into the party. They should be embraced with open arms that they're wanting to come in and contribute to uh, the political discourse in this country and, mm. and try and make uh, what should be the main Conservative Party even stronger. Yeah. Yeah, certainly one of the fears that these uh, party controllers have is the, the fear that an, an influx of authentic Christians and authentic Conservatives is going to make their own compromised uh, positions uh, somewhat untenable uh, democratically. And so they have to stop that influx of members and, and label that undemocratic when all people like me, who I'm not a party member because I, I know of the short leash that the LNP likes to keep party members on, I want to be able to call a spade a spade, balls and strikes, and, uh, and, and to me, it's undemocratic and totalitarian to exclude people from the party because they're too conservative, too Christian. And, and the reality is that the agenda that people like me want to join with is to make the party better to help defeat Labor. Uh, if there's three or four uh, right of centre candidates, we want to choose the one who best represents us long before we get to the ballot box uh, in a general election. Um, but party elders seem to think that that is undemocratic and they call it branch stacking 
and then invent punitive measures to stop it from happening and preserve the status quo. Correct, but 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 it's worse than that. You know, I actually, I was part of a push to get people who had uh, probably felt a bit dis, disgruntled with the uh, with the Liberal Party or the National Party or the LNP to come back to the party, to come back home. So we went out chasing uh, people who, you know, may have floated with One Nation or with Australian Conservatives or you know, what have you, and said to them, look, come back home, come into the party, we need you here, uh, we need your sensible views to, to, to help us uh, regain government. And so we had a flood of these people coming into the party and the party bosses were rubbing their hands with glee. Cha-ching, cha-ching, every time a membership fee was paid and what they were thinking was, wow, a lot of these are coming from Brisbane and we're going to have more people to go out and man the booth. So they're happy for these people mm. to come in, pay the fees, do the donations, do the fundraising drives, drives, do all the grunt work, go out door knocking, stand in the hot sun for market stalls or polling booth or pre-poll or what have you. But then you know what happened? These people who joined started saying, well, uh, maybe we might want to actually take up a position in the party. And then one of them was elected to uh, a Brisbane branch, the head of a branch. And suddenly everyone started lighting their hair on fire. Who are these people? Uh, who are all these people that joined up? Uh, what are we going to do? The next minute you have the executive pushing for new measures that restricted members' voting rights and also restricted uh, people's eligibility within the party to stand for office. So now you have to be a member of the party for 12 months before you can actually hold office in the party or before you can vote in a pre-selection or even on a motion or a position like an office bearer position in a branch. Um, that's something that's never been the case. They're going to tell you it makes it all the more difficult to get people into the party. And we said that at the time. You know, people who want to come in, they want to come in, guns are blazing because they're full of energy. Uh, well, you tell them sit in the corner and be cannon fodder for a year, they're not going to be so excited. They're probably not even going to join up. Yeah. No, the, the reason people join is to have a say, get involved, uh, and and not just be cheap labour. Um, and, yeah, if they're not being heard, if they're not feeling part of that process, I've got to say, you know, part of my push, uh, part of the reason I've been doing what I've been doing for so many years is to get Christians out of the pews and into the parties uh, mm. so they actually can love their neighbour better. It's not about... Uh, you know, threatening any particular personality. What I do want to threaten is the march through the institutions, the, the, the creeping wokeism where people like Malcolm Turnbull, who was the first prime minister to campaign against Australia's extant marriage laws, I mean, that's just atrocious that that should come from uh, the right side of politics. Uh, and 
And yet it, it seems like the broad tent, which uh, John Howard coined that phrase of, now wants to exclude classical liberals and conservatives and only embrace those uh, self-congratulatorily named uh, self-titled moderates as if there's anything moderate about them uh, when they're only marginally less left than Labor. But, uh, you know, it's a real disincentive to to the people that I'm trying to appeal to and say, hey, make politics better, get involved, and they're actually punished for being conservative. Well, let me... Let me allay some fears, right? Um, so the bizarre thing is that I know some of these people who are the, you know, call them faceless men and women, the party bigwigs, party bosses, what have you, and some of them are very conservative themselves. Some of them are very Christian themselves. So you think, well, why would they be excluding people wanting to join the party, people wanting to run? Um, and what... A, you know, I've tried to work it out. I really have tried to work it out. And the best that I can come up with is what I said in my Facebook post. I think that they have just become so ingrained in being in, in, being in control of the party that now anything that looks like a threat is going to be treated like a threat. And anything, uh, you know, what, what, what threats are to them is anyone that may subscribe to some higher cause than just simply the dictates that they issue from their high office. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, it may not necessarily be a, a um, you know, moderates versus conservative sort of battle that's going on here. Although I think that some of that has crept in. Some of it definitely has crept in. Oh, Sure. People in so-called moderate force uh, within the LNP have probably been rubbing their hands together the fact that um, uh, these Christians and conservatives have been excluded. But uh, look, the, the problem is much, much I, I know for an absolute fact, George, that uh, the left factions of the LNP have been rubbing their hands together in glee at perceived short-term victories and triumphs over who they coin and phrase and position as the others. Uh, I think the Courier Mail has labelled them the Christian soldiers. Um, in their minds, in their minds, it's an us versus them battle uh, instead of a all of us together in this alleged broad church against the Labor Party. Well, there's more than just that, though. I mean... Uh... That's the big one. That's probably one that's most relevant to you. But I can tell you perhaps the most disenfranchised group within the party or the ones that feel the most disenfranchised are the regional and rural members who, you know, put up their views time and again, mm. tell the office, tell the bigwigs what they want to see in terms of policies, what they want to see in terms of campaigning, uh, and they're just just overlooked. It's just like, okay, go back into your corner. Um, we're going to do it our way. I mean, at the last state election, let me just give you an example of that. At the last state election, I was asked to, uh, to, to look over a brochure that was going to be put out for one of the state candidates. And uh, I had a look at this brochure and it had in there the pledge that the LNP were going to 
do an upgrade of the M1. And I'm thinking, what the hell has that got to do with North Queensland? But yet this is the kind of thing they're wanting to send out. So it's little things to, like that to big things like saying, no, we can't have a coal-fired power station up here. Mm. Um, uh, we really do need to listen more to the people from the regions because the resultant impact is the LNP now has two seats north of Mackay, two yep. seats. Uh, the Catter Australia Party has three. Um, wow. So, <laughs> go figure. Yep. It, yeah, it, it definitely says there's a, a constituency not being serviced by the LNP there in in regional Australia. Look, I, I think look, I actually think it's fair to play by the rules and the democratisation of the party is a much needed reform where power gets returned to the base, returned to the grassroots, and and there's just be a whole lot more of buy-in. I, I like the old model of the National Party where the, the state conference, you know, resolutions and policy conclusions were binding on the parliamentary wing of the party, which has fallen by the wayside. And, and any policies debated and decided upon by the conference are of absolutely no significance or consequence to the uh, policies officially of the party in opposition or government. Look, I, I, I believe that there's reform when I see it. Um, you know, the, the people who are entrenched and ensconced in, in, the, uh, in the upper echelons of the party, the hierarchy as we call it, um, they will fight tooth and nail to stop any meaningful change. Mm. Uh, I, I mean, I, again, I put it in my Facebook post, but I want to underline this one. I was there present, and I would swear in a stack of Bibles on this that this happened. I was there at a state council meeting, uh, a very, you know, uh, it's a very powerful body within the LNP where decisions of the president's committee and state executive are supposed to be ratified. They're pretty much just rubber stamped. Uh, but there was one controversial uh, uh, agenda item, and I forget what it was, but we had a vote. And it was quite, quite clear to me and to many others that the vote was, uh, was, was defeated, I think it was, defeated. Mm -hmm. And... Um, uh, the chairman ruled that it, the vote was in favour and then declared there was a, 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 an afternoon tea break. Uh, yeah. And, and then everyone dispersed very quickly. And yeah. I was like, I looked at the person next to me and I said, that's rubbish. That was yep. against. And uh, they said, yeah, it was too. Nothing can happen now. Uh, wow. I mean... Yep. So they're the kind of tactics that you see from the head office just to get their way. And it's yeah. just wrong, wrong, yeah. democracy. I think you and I are probably on the same page. And in when I say all we really want is there to be a level playing ground, you know, stop stacking the deck and let it just be grassroots, democratic. Uh, David Crisofoli, these are his sentiments that you're echoing in your oh. Facebook post. Uh, return power to the grassroots and get rid of the president's committee. Uh, what do you think is David Crisofulli's future? Has he uh, criticised the hand that's feeding him? Is his days now numbered or do you think he stands a chance of success? 
Well, I think what you have is David Crisofoli plus uh, the grassroots um, all in sync on this, and uh, that's them against the hierarchy. So uh, it'll be interesting who wins that battle. I suspect, though, that what will happen is what the Courier-Mail has reported, and that is that uh, uh, the olive branch will be, oh, well, we'll let the leader of the party and the deputy leader um, plus, you know, someone else or a few other people join the president's committee to help democratise it. Well, you know, uh, you could say, well, okay, that's putting a few guardians on the president's committee. But in essence, all it is is making the leader and deputy leader and all the others they put on it complicit in the dictatorial decisions mm. that that committee is still going to make. Uh, that committee has too much power. That committee has the ability to do whatever they want and make the party do whatever they want. Uh, kick someone out, suspend someone. It happens mm. effectively immediately. Yes, you've got appeal rights. You can go to other tribunals and units within the party to try and appeal it. But it's never, ever done because they've got all the processes, they've got all the control uh, and, and and that's what effectively the president's committee is. It, yep. it, it sees itself, without a doubt, as the LNP, and it sees everyone else underneath it as electoral cannon fodder. You are the grunts. You go out and do the work. We make the decisions. We've got the big boys' pants on. Well, sure. that ain't how a Democratic Party should operate. No. It sounds like they've got all the power and enjoy and intend to maintain the power of judge, jury and executioner over every policy and decision and members' fate and fortune in in the party. Mm, it's very sad indeed. It needs to be fixed. And that's what my call is. Uh, it's not... Uh, it, you know, it, it, it does pain me to say it, actually, because I've been a member of the party for almost three decades now, um, it pains me to say it, but uh, it's truth. And uh, sometimes uh, the, the, the truth, even uh, hard truth and uncomfortable truth, needs to be told to get a fix. I hope that there is a fix. Yeah. I hope we see uh, progress at this state council. But I've got to tell you, I won't be holding my breath on it. No, indeed. Well, we'll be sure to uh, do a follow-up report on this uh, in next week's episode. Uh, so that is the LNP State Conference uh, or Convention. I can't remember which word they prefer, uh, but that's happening convention uh, tomorrow in uh, in Brisbane. Uh, George, thank you very much for making yourself available for the Good Source audience as always. Thanks very much, David. Well, that's on tomorrow, starting tomorrow in Brisbane, the LNP convention. It's also extending through Saturday and Sunday. And uh, at that convention, there hopefully will be a showdown um, or, or an easy passing of major reforms. Uh, I don't think the uh, hegemony, the existing powers, controllers and, and uh, bigwigs, as George put it, of the LNP will surrender that power quickly. Um, however, uh, that is something that's going to be there. So I encourage all members to get along to the convention if you can and uh, let us know 
Um, I certainly won't be going, but I'll be very interested in hearing the on-the-ground reports um, of of what goes on and if there's a free and fair debate, if there's genuine reform, if the President's Committee gets abolished or if it just gets uh, a little gesture to uh, pretend it's going to look democratic by including the parliamentary leader, uh, which, as George said, really isn't a, a worthwhile change at all. Uh, yes, um, the major parties uh, have had democracy in them in the past. This isn't a, a corrupt and hopeless um, entity and solution. It's just drifted. Uh, and they need some conventions to restore back to uh, what they once were. As I said uh, with George, the National Party used to have uh, binding sentiments on the parliamentary wing, that what the members wanted actually became policy, uh, and, and that's the way it should be. A guest um, joining us soon, Professor David Flint, has some great ideas on reintroducing democracy back into the major parties, and, and those things are very good. But what we don't want is a small group of people wielding dictatorial power over an organisation that is meant to be representative of its members. Uh, and this is just the mood for the decade, 2020, 2021. It, it seems like those in power are greedily, voraciously accumulating more and more power for themselves. And alarmingly, citizens of free nations are handing over power willingly, enthusiastically, pleading on their knees, please, government, save us, please, government, save us from a virus that has a 99.7% mild rate, incredibly hard to die from. Please, what's actually killing us is government. What's actually destroying our nation is a pandemic of government power, not a Wuhan flu. Uh, and I had somebody uh, on social media object to me using that term, saying they were very concerned that I used that slang term. Well, uh, the Russian Communist Party was very concerned that uh, people thought that their incompetence and arrogance led to the explosion of the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. This is the fact that uh, the Chinese Communist Party simply wants to cover up um, their responsibility for the poor management, ignorance and arrogance of, of their communist regime at the Wuhan Institute of Viro Virology. They actually put the name on the door. It's right there over the door. The Wuhan Institute of Virology. This is the Wuhan flu. Just like German measles, just like the Spanish flu, it's geographically accurate. And what I'm concerned about is that we have well-intended people in Australia supporting communist propaganda. Uh, and, and that's not something we should be part of. But the constant assault on freedoms in our nation is something that we absolutely must say enough is enough that we can't have any more of this at all. We've got, uh, it's so easy to talk about the financial cost, about the business cost, about the economic cost, but that is just the tip of the iceberg that you can see above the water. What's buried beneath the water, what's very hard to measure is the health cost, the fatalities from consequential, directly consequential to government policy, not the flu, 
government policy, the lockdown, the, the delayed detection of degenerative and infectious diseases, uh, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, other diseases, which if detected early are treatable and not life-threatening, but if detected late will cost lives in the coming years. There's been plenty of documentation and writing about the health cost, the mortality cost, the life years lost because of government policy, not the Wuhan flu, not to mention all the people plunged into depths of depression, anxiety, stress, isolation, loneliness, uh, epidemic uh, psychological disease resulting in suicides now at incredible rates, um, rumoured increases in domestic violence uh, and and the stresses on people's lives and, and marriages uh, being separated from loved ones as important life events, births, weddings, funerals, uh, the ridiculous, punitive, um, inconsistent and arbitrary laws. And we've got citizens and media begging the government to take our freedoms away from us. Well, enough is enough. This Saturday, there is a worldwide demonstration, a worldwide protest for a day of freedom. And freedom is exactly what this is all about. It's not about my selfish preference for comfort and not wearing a mask. The critics of, of us, freedom lovers, say, you know, I'm happy to wear a mask if it's going to save just one life, as if we're killing people by refusing to wear a mask, which is obnoxiously rude and presumptuous of our motives. What I'm actually motivated by is freedom for my neighbours, not just my comfort wearing a mask, not just my personal liberty, but the liberty and freedom for my 25 million neighbours. You know what the difference is? Is we are so drunk and stupefied on, on the abundant freedom that we've had for so long, we have no capacity or context for actually valuing it by comparison to the lack of freedom. Well, let's look at the lack of freedom and what that does to a nation. This is a picture of the Korean Peninsula, the Korean Peninsula by night from a NASA satellite. Uh, and in that picture, you can see the southern tip of the peninsula, South Korea, and the northern tip of the peninsula, North Korea. The capital of the north is Pyongyang, and that is the only flickering light of any strength in the darkness of night from space in the middle of the ocean. And then you have South Korea, which is just bursting with light, its capital exploding with intense light that you you can't even see the, the darkness between the different suburbs. And all over the nation, there's just burgeoning industry and development uh, in the north. They like to call that food. Uh, but in the south of Korea, you've got not just industry and economy, but you've got religious freedom. You've got spiritual freedom. You've got freedom to preach the gospel. You've got freedom to disagree with the government and, and be an atheist. You can do whatever you want within civil reason in South Korea. And the difference isn't the Wuhan flu. The difference is a pandemic called government tyranny. 
It's the difference is freedom. That's what we need to fight for. This is far more important to the future of Australia than, than a silly inconvenience from Musk. That is not what we're concerned about. And if you're a critic or a defend or if you're a critic of people complaining about the government tyranny now, you need to know it's not something so petty. And if you are focusing on people who have those kind of cheap um, complaints, you're really doing yourself a disservice by not trying to answer the best arguments against this current expanse of power. So I want to encourage you further to uh, head to um, a protest that's going to be near you this Saturday. This Saturday, there's going to be 180 plus cities around the world. One day, everyone together, we will all be there. This website is worldwidedemonstration.com, worldwidedemonstration.com. And on it, you will find a link to organizations. And uh, there you will find a link to uh, at least four different rallies happening in Australia. Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth, and Brisbane is the bottom one there, the People's Revolution. I've been speaking to some of the organizers in Brisbane um, and or people involved with the organization there, maybe not the only ones. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's going to be really good. So just in brief, the Worldwide Demonstration, also known as or more commonly known, um, I've only seen it called the Worldwide Rally for Freedom, is an internationally syndicated community protest event dedicated to emboldening citizens to push back against coronavirus-related restrictions in their countries. The event is deployed by member organisations in each city with full local autonomy at the grassroots level. It's completely decentralised using international consensus to align the date, uh, and leaving all local organization local. Um, and of course, it's completely peaceful and it's not apolitical. That is a terrible use of the word, common and terrible. It's nonpartisan. That's what they mean there. It's not affiliated with any political party, but it's very, very political because the tyranny that we're protesting is political. And so the statement is, of course, political. Well, I uh, also want to mention um, that there's probably going to be something encouraging for men in particular at the Brisbane event. Um, so that was uh, something the organisers requested I mentioned. be great to see you there. I'll be at the Brisbane Botanic Gardens at midday on, um, on Saturday. And uh, the protest should be fairly long there. There'll be a march which uh, leaves in the middle and goes somewhere and comes back. Um, so, you know, bring a bottle of water and, and maybe a snack because it'll probably start about midday and might finish somewhere between 3 and 4 p.m. And, of course, you don't have to come for the whole lot. Now, can I please ask everybody, if you are going to the protests uh, this Saturday, I would really love to send uh, to get you to send me some videos, uh, short clips, long clips, um, with notes on, on any particular time where something interesting happens. I'll try and put them all together and, and make a report on, on the uh, protest around Australia. Um, and um, please send those videos to editor at goodsource.news. If it's small enough, you can send it as an attachment to the email or upload it to a cloud storage somewhere and just send me the link to download it, editor at goodsource.news. Uh, well, before we started the uh, show, uh, tonight, we actually uh, read an article just in, in the pre-warm-up time from uh, Professor David Flint, and uh, I'm going to ask him to join us in just a second, but that's because there's there's been uh, some armchair experts on the internet um, offering 
some very, very assertive opinions, uh, very, very loud and strong in their opinions uh, about the Constitution. Uh, and I'm concerned that these people who are essentially time wasters um, are being listened to by people with an open mind and intellectual curiosity. Now, if you're one of those people who's very, very closed-minded, is absolutely certain that uh, nobody who disagrees with them could possibly be telling the truth or possibly know what they're talking about, just not interested. This session and this segment isn't for you. Do your best to listen, and if you have something civil and sincere to contribute, disagreement is welcome. But primarily, this session on the Constitution now is for people who are confused and who would like an expert, a qualified, uh, experienced um, professional, not an armchair expert. Uh, and look, I, I'm the best of armchair experts, uh, but the right attitude for an armchair expert is to collect information and to not be dogmatic about it. And to be fair, I've had to change my mind on what I thought the Constitution said over the last week or two because the most honest and intellectual thing we can do is pursue truth and be open to correction. Uh, and so this is really, really important. And of course, this is to do with the topic of mandated medicines, uh, mandatory vaccines. Yes, that big, ugly V word. Hopefully we don't get the video taken down. And if so, we'll keep streaming and uh, it'll put it up on Rumble and the website tomorrow morning. Um, but that is uh, essentially what we're going to be talking about now. Uh, and one of the worst things that we can do is be like the radical left and interpret the Constitution through our preferred outcomes instead of what it actually says. Uh, so let's talk about the Constitution, legislation, and uh, rights to interpretation. Um, because opinions are like belly buttons. Everybody got one, and some of them are fluffier than others. Um, professor David Flint, AM, is an emeritus professor of law and was chairman of the Australian Broadcasting Authority and the Australian Press Council. He was president of the National Federation of the English Speaking Union, associate commissioner with the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, and convener of the Committee of Australian Law Deans. He has been National Convener of Australians for Constitutional Monarchy since the 1999 referendum campaign. And he has authored books on topics such as the media, international economic law, and on the Constitution. If you haven't written a book on the Constitution, uh, perhaps uh, two ears, one mouth. At Barcelona in 1991, he received a World Jurist Association Award as World Outstanding Legal Scholar. He was made a member of the Order of Australia in 1995. His Good Source show, Take Back Your Country, discusses the problems and solutions to the decay of federalism and democracy. Professor Flint, thank you so much for making yourself available tonight to help unravel some of the mysteries of what the Constitution says, how we should interpret it, and whose opinion really matters. Well, good evening, David, and thank you for inviting me. The Constitution, as we know, is the document which united the country. I think the really important thing we, which we must all bear in mind 
is that under the Constitution, the American solution was adopted of having a high court, in America a Supreme Court, and giving it the final authority, not especially in America, but the court took it anyway. But that court has the final authority in telling us what the Constitution means. Let me say I quite often have not been very happy with what the High Court has decided is the meaning of the Constitution. That said, all I can say is I disagree with that decision. But the only place we can go to for a binding decision on what the High Court, what the Constitution means, is the High Court. It tends to be the case, and this is a big criticism of America, tends to be the case that uh, the Constitution means what the judges say it means. And there have been changes in the meaning over the years. And that's the situation we find ourselves in, in relation to this question as to whether uh, compulsory vaccination can occur in relation to specific occupations, or even, and uh, I think this would be terrible, but even in relation to all the population. There's even talk, as you know, of uh, some form of vaccination passport, which you mm. could use, or you need to use in relation to crossing borders or in relation to going into certain places, and so on. And the question is, to what extent can this be done? I think it would be wrong to do that. Mm. It would be in breach of a very fundamental principle. Yes. That medical treatment, including vaccination, requires informed consent. I think there's an obligation on the state to inform us properly, which they're not doing, in relation both as to the vaccine and the unintended consequences of the vaccine, but also in relation to the effectiveness of the vaccine, which I think is being over-preached by some of the authorities when you see what's happened in Israel and in the United Kingdom. That said, uh, the Constitution, from the interpretation of the High Court, is quite clear in relation to both the role of the Commonwealth and of the states. Now, something um, that let, let's start at the beginning. Let, let's actually get to the meat of the conspiracy theories that are, are going out there, the constitutional conspiracies. Uh, section 51 uh, and Section 52 of the Constitution, uh, what is their purpose and, and what do, do they exist for? Well, Section 51 sets out the legislative powers of the Commonwealth. And all of those in 51, which is the biggest list of powers, are those which the Commonwealth Parliament can exercise or the executive can exercise under legislation. But they are all shared with the states. None of them are exclusive. The exclusive mm -hmm. powers are in Section 52 and there aren't many ones exclusive to the Commonwealth. So most powers are shared with the states. And to overcome the problem that there could be uh, a contradiction between federal and state laws, you find in Section 109 a very simple provision. It merely says that if there is an inconsistency between a law passed by the federal parliament and law of the states, then the law passed by the federal parliament must prevail. 
and Heichel's developed a doctrine, which is that if you can establish that the Commonwealth, that Canberra intends to take over the whole power, occupy the whole field, then the High Court will give all of the power to the Commonwealth. So there are a number of powers, they're all shared, and among these are powers relating to medical matters. Mm -hmm. So there is no... Um, uh, I'll make statements and, and you contradict them. Uh, if I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong. Um, viewers watching, uh, your questions and your comments are most certainly welcome. Uh, if you're not interested in listening at all, um, then then just don't bother. But uh, I think most of the 99.7% um, of of uh, Pello Talk watchers are as harmless and as the coronavirus. Uh, only 0.3% are fatal. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, if you've seen things out there, we'd love to clear them up tonight with a constitutional law professor. Uh, so Section 51, uh, I think it's Section 23, Part A, um, Part 23A, uh, says uh, a, a part of the law of the, the areas where the federal government can share power with the state governments um, is is excluding um, the, partic the particular words of, of private conscription referring to medical and dental treatment. Uh, so what that says, uh, correct me if I'm true or false, does that mean the federal government may not make any laws uh, conscripting medical or dental treatment? That's the interpretation of that provision. It was an amendment to the Constitution. It wasn't in the original constitution amendment proved one of the few proved by the people in the 40s and uh, it includes as you say medical and dental services but not so as to authorize any form of civil conscription well, that civil means, conscription that's the word yes that means that at the state level they make look may make laws in relation to medical and dental services but they're not restricted Right. in relation to civil conscription. That restriction only applies to when the Commonwealth exercises that power. There, there, was a, there, there was an understanding, an interpretation by the original High Court. The original High Court, headed by the Chief Justice, Sir Samuel Griffith, a former Premier of Queensland, they were unanimous in holding to the view that any power not listed among the powers in Section 51 were reserved to the states. In about 1920, the, common, the High Court changed that and gave a more centralist interpretation. They said, well, all of those, all of those powers in Section 51 don't need to be read on the understanding that a power that's not there is reserved to the states, like education. You give the, all of these powers their plain English interpretation to the full, and those are then Commonwealth powers. So by 1920, you see a change in the attitude of the High Court, increasing centralization, which has continued to this very day. And we have yes. a much more centralized federation than before. But yes. what is clear in relation to the question you put to me, 
is that if the Commonwealth exercises that power, it's subject to the rule that they can't set up a system of civil conscription. Right. But the states can. Yes, the states can. Now, um, here... And they have. And they have, that's right. And, and of course, the states can pass bad laws that are objectively corrupt and frauds against natural law uh, and even unconstitutional laws, uh, and they stand until challenged and overturned by the High Court. So that they exist already is not in and of itself proof that it's constitutional, um, but it certainly does mean that the High Court has not yet interpreted the Constitution uh, against them. Um, so here's the, the next bit. Um, Before you go on, yes, the cases where the High Court has said a state law is not valid, particularly re related to Section 92, that's trade, commerce and intercourse between the states shall be absolutely free. They've mm. used that quite a lot in the past, not mm. so much now. But it's always open to the High Court to say such and such a law breaches the Constitution, but they don't often do it. No. Uh, and, and the High Court, uh, I think you've taught me this, uh, tends to consistently rule on the side of the Commonwealth, uh, mm. rightly or wrongly. Um, their opinion is the one that tends to matter. Uh, now... Section 109 says that a law of the state uh, has to be consistent with the law of the Commonwealth. And if there's an inconsistency, the Commonwealth law uh, prevails. Is Section 51 a law about banning uh, medical... Is, is it a law in itself, Professor Flint? Is Section 51 a law in itself which the states have to be consistent with? It it's not in the contemplation of Section 109. Section 109 is talking about the situation where you have, on the one hand, an act of the Commonwealth Parliament, not the Constitution, an act of the Commonwealth Parliament, and you have an act of the states, and where there seems to be, where there's found to be an inconsistency. To the extent of the inconsistency, the state law is invalid and the Commonwealth law prevails. It's quite clear, but it, it only relates to an act of the Commonwealth Parliament and the, an act of the State Parliament. It doesn't relate to the Constitution itself. The Constitution itself prevails anyway. Now, something I, I was bouncing off you earlier today, because I, I like to do my research, and, and there's at least half a dozen constitutional law professors I know. So when I pretend like I know something about this, it's because I'm researching it. And, and I get that the armchair experts are researching it. Uh, so that's in and of itself, by the by, I guess. Um, but uh, I was speaking to Professor Augusto Zimmerman today. And um, when I was talking to you, Professor Flint, um, you, you corrected me uh, that I was using the words reserve um, as in the Constitution reserves some powers to the states, um, and, and that's not actually true, um, and I appreciate that correction. Um, Professor Zimmerman um, said that he and uh, Nicholas Aroni, who you, you may know, um, actually use language from Section 107. Now, let's just... 
bring that up. Um, and not that the Constitution reserves certain powers to the states and denies them to the Commonwealth, but uh, let's just read Section 107. Every power of... Uh, Section 107 is called Saving of Power of State Parliaments. And it reads, Every power of the Parliament of a colony which has become or becomes a state shall unless it is by this constitution exclusively vested in the Parliament of the Commonwealth or withdrawn from the Parliament of the State, continue as at the establishment of the Commonwealth or as at the admission or establishment of the State, as the case may be. So it's saying there that the powers which the States have prior to Federation and at the time of Federation those powers are not extinguished by the Constitution. They are to continue as specifically instructed by Section 107. And so if the Constitution doesn't take those powers away from the states and the Commonwealth doesn't seek to overrule them there, as you explained earlier, uh, then the default position is that the states do, in fact, have those positions, uh, sorry, those powers, protected by section 107 the continuance that those powers they had continue uh, your thoughts on on augusto's commentary offered there well i can't deny section 107 there's no doubt that that applies <laughs> uh, but if you if the high court decides to give uh, greater projections of the powers under section 51 for example Take the external affairs power. What the High Court has effectively said is that if Canberra enters into a treaty, which is very easy to do, doesn't require going to Parliament, once Canberra enters into a treaty, for example, about environmental law, there's an international treaty on the environment, mm -hmm. that then gives Canberra a power to legislate in relation to the treaty. So it vastly increases the legislative power of the Commonwealth. Now, I don't yes. think the founders intended that, but that's what has happened. And uh, could, that could, uh, with that interpretation, um, give the Commonwealth the rather ridiculous, trivial powers that uh, really should be none of its portfolio. Would, would that be true? That would be so. Take, for example... At the time of federation, the states had vast powers in relation to criminal law, including criminal law penalties. Mm -hmm. Those penalties extended to capital punishment. A Commonwealth gov government entered into a United Nations treaty. Not all countries have entered into this. It's a treaty for the abolition of the death penalty. The Commonwealth then passed a law abolishing the death penalty throughout the Commonwealth. That means, according to the High Court, no state can, even if it wants to, impose a death penalty against, say, a notorious murderer, a terrible traitor. That could not be imposed by the states because of this law that the Commonwealth has passed under the external affairs power because it entered into a United Nations treaty about the abolition of the death penalty. Even mm. though... Section 107 says that the powers of the state in relation to criminal law continue after federation. 
Well, yes, that that is until uh, they're withdrawn um, or exclusively vested. So some of those interpretations would would be harmonious with Section 107. Um, they're, they're obviously not in perpetuity, um, but until otherwise rescinded is, is essentially my my reading of it. Now, we have a question from Timothy Armstrong, just finding that, uh, from earlier tonight. Uh, and he says, I think it's clear that the federal government is constitutionally barred from legislating to mandate vaccines. Correct me here if I'm wrong. Uh, you're not wrong. What, if anything, bars the states from mandating vaccinations, Professor Flint? What, if anything, bars the states from mandating vaccinations? Well, Given, for example, here in Victoria, there are already laws entering this area. That is, no jab, no play rules for children. I, I would think that if the Commonwealth were determined to try this, to try and impose its own federal mandating law requiring uh, vaccinations, they'd say, well, we're relying not on that, not on 23A, we're relying on the quarantine law. It's, a, it's, it's incidental to the quarantine power, which is in placetum nine. That, that's what lawyers do. But yeah. let's say the Commonwealth decides not to do that, the states decide to do it. There is no obvious reason why the states can be restrained from that except under a state constitution. I can't think of a federal reason, a federal reason which would stop the states from imposing a requirement as to vaccinations, as they have already done. For example, on, on the, first, uh, the first few days of the lockdown in New South Wales, when it was restricted to uh, the eastern suburbs and the city, and remember the lockdown was caused by a cluster which began, they called it the Bondi Cluster. It began because the New South Wales government neglected advice for four months that they should regulate uh, drivers of limousines who take around airline crews around Sydney. Well, they, they, they let that one go through, but that night, the night of the, the vaccine being, uh, the uh, lockdown being introduced into the eastern suburbs, Brad Hazard signed an order, which has the effect of subordinate legislation. He signed an order which regulates the vaccination of limousine drivers in Sydney. Now, I haven't heard that challenged, and uh, I would think that if it were, there would be difficulty in finding a ground to challenge that. I would think that the closure of the building industry would be more easy to challenge yeah, yeah. I certainly think uh, political expediency is the best weapon we have in fighting this tyranny. Uh, that is to make it too hot for the politicians uh, to continue with this plan. I think fighting in the courts is the strongest legal recourse we have with a very uncertain outcome, if, if not doubtful, because of the tradition of the high courts to side with the Commonwealth. Um, I mean, even Clive Palmer in Western Australia was unsuccessful there, and that seemed to be a very cut and dry uh, case for keeping borders open for commerce um, constitutionally, uh, and that wasn't enough to persuade the High Court. Uh, it it just... may have been in Clive, if I may interrupt that, in Clive Palmer's case, the lawyers decided to challenge the legislation which empowered the West Australian government to close the borders. What they might have done was to have challenged that actual closure, which they didn't do. And the mm. the Chief Justice 
vaguely drew attention to that, that the, what, what they were being asked to do was to find that the law which gives that power to the West Australian government to close the borders if there were a medical reason to do so mm. was invalid rather than challenging the specific example as being yes. not in accordance with that law. But they didn't do that. Yep. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm just going to play a brief clip from uh, Scott Morrison today. We won't play all of it. I'll, I'll tell you, Matt, when we just need to cut that. But let's have a, a quick look at this clip, and hopefully we've got the audio coming through. All Australians that want to jab would have their second dose. And once they are able to have that opportunity, would you support measures such as vaccine certificates to make sure that people could go to events at full capacity next year? Well, these are all the things that we'll consider in those various step changes, step two, step three. Uh, we already have vaccine certificates. They already exist. And uh, those vaccine certificates this month we expect to be in a form that can be dropped into Apple wallets, things of that nature. And later in the year, about October, we estimate, um, we'll have a, a vaccination certificate that will be able to be um, uh, used internationally, recognised. Just on no, jab, you said we don't mandate vaccines in this country. But you, I believe, were social services minister when no jab, no play came in, which is about as close as you can get to mandating vaccines. So why wouldn't you take mm -hmm. that approach? Just to follow up this well, question. Well, I didn't say we wouldn't. I'd why say... Why not take up the French approach where we've got a tiny minority protesting yeah. and millions of extra people now getting vaccines? Yeah. My record, as you've outlined it, is, is true. Um, so I think so you know where... I, I think you, my record speaks to my disposition on these things, but they're not things that the Prime Minister or even the, the federal government decides. Ultimately, Restrictions that are be placed on people moving about in their states can only be imposed by states. The Commonwealth government can't do that. Only the state governments completely can place immoral. restrictions on people entering a venue, completely uh, entering immoral. a place of work, things like this. There are also industrial relations issues. Complete here violation of natural well. law. Um, that they can apply uh, the public health orders that, that mandate vaccinations, like the Western Australia Premier has done in terms of quarantine-based workers. They have those powers. This they can the implement enemy. them. I can provide them with the tools that helps them to implement them, like the, the vac digital vaccine certificates and things of that nature, and they can employ them. That's why we've kept them well up to date uh, with how those those mechanisms and those <coughs> systems are working. Recently, and Andrew, I mentioned earlier... Just this pause it there. I think that's... Uh... I mean, this is just appalling, Professor Flint. We, we have the, the government here, uh, the federal government and the state governments essentially conspiring uh, to set us up for complete martial law, complete deprivation of basic civil liberties, which were not granted by government. Uh, they were granted by God. Uh, and if you don't believe in God, then believe in what the way the the american founders uh, uh, chose to describe it as self-evident unalienable rights i agree with you entirely those rights are self-evident they're granted by our creator and they're not granted by the politicians he he is obviously preparing to give the states the tools they will need to do this and did you notice that the reporter as so much of the mainstream media are doing. The reporter was egging him on. Mm. The reporters 
have become not people trying to hold governments accountable. They are acting in many ways as the agents of the government, telling people to do the right thing, wearing masks when they don't wear masks, and that reporter mm. saying, well, why don't you do this? Uh, I, I think it's, it is very bad and it is contrary, as you say, to the natural law. This is not for governments to decide. Mm. And there is enormous abuse here, just, just with the QR codes. Graham Greenleaf, who is the Australian expert in computer law, says that there are enormous loopholes in relation to the QR codes and that he suggested legislation which would plug those and these can lead to both government abuse and identity theft. He's the expert. He's given that warning. He gave it in December last year and that has been ignored by all governments of Australia. I think the governments are behaving very bad, badly. They are behaving very badly. Look, uh, we could probably go into the problem a whole lot further, and and the symptoms and the evidence, uh, and and the the outro. I mean, the rest of that clip. Which, if you'd like to see the rest of that clip, it's available on Senator Malcolm Roberts' uh, Facebook page. I'll put the uh, link to that in the show notes um, for tonight, because the mainstream media go on to basically talk about sending the army from house to house. I think it was on Sky. Um, sending the army house to house in Fairfield to mandatorily vaccinate everybody in, in those suburbs, at least in those suburbs. I mean, we've got uh, atrocious tyranny on, on the verge here. Uh, and so for anybody who would disagree with me and say my only concern is for the comfort of not wearing a mask, uh, I, I think you're bonkers and you do yourself a, a disservice by being so intellectually lazy as to just insult somebody disagreeing with you instead of trying to understand that my motivation is at least as compassionate as yours uh, and and probably nowhere near as ignorant um, uh, with no due respect. Um, but enough talking about the problems, Professor Flint. You've got some great solutions and we've talked about them in times past but not recently on, on The Good Source and Pello Talk uh, about how to return power to the grassroots, how to return people, how to re-democratise. Um, why don't you bullet point some of those major elements in, in, your, in your plans and strategies on, on how we could actually fix democracy in Australia? Well, let me go back to the 19th century and remind viewers that federation was not achieved by the politicians. The first constitutional convention, which met in 1891, produced the constitution. But when it went back to the state parliaments, the colonial parliaments, they bickered among one another. The result would have been we would, ne we would never have become one country. We'd probably be like South America, several countries on one continent. There was a people's conference. People concerned with the movement for federation. It was held at Korowa in 1893. And uh, one of the great founders of Australia is not well known, Sir John Quick, moved a motion. It became known subsequently as the Corriboa Plan. His argument was that in future, when another convention were held, it'd be directly elected. The convention beforehand was appointed. This should be directly elected. And the crucial part of the Corriboa Plan was that 
once it came to a draft constitution and consulted widely with the people and the parliaments, it would then go back and finalise the constitution and then that would be put directly to the people of Australia in a series of referendums. And that's what occurred. The extraordinary thing is that once that process started, in four years and two referendums, most states had to have two referendums because of obstinacy on the part of the people of New South Wales. And there was a slow move in Western Australia for a referendum. In four years with two referendums, then taking the constitution to London, putting it, they had to go there by ships that took several months, remember? And there were no uh, faxes and no, no computers and no internet. And they got it through the British Parliament, which was very supportive with some minor changes. All of that was done and it was proclaimed by the Queen after the, South the Western Australian results came in. The whole thing took four years, four years. In Sydney, wow. we couldn't lay a tram track down George Street in four <laughs> years. It took longer than that. We can't build trams in four years. But we made, the people of Australia made a nation in four years. Now, that constitution hasn't been looked at as a totality by the people since that time. And that's a long time ago, over well over 120 years. We've had a few referendums. Remember, only the Commonwealth Parliament can put up a referendum. And actually, most of those have been to give more power to the Commonwealth. The people said, no, we're happy with the states having those powers. Mm. What we need is a second corridor plan. What we need is for the people of Australia, through a convention, to go through a similar process with the people electing a convention, I would say with no candidates standing who are uh, chosen by the major political parties, as happened with the, uh, the Republic Convention in 1998. Have each state elect a number equivalent to their representatives and senators, let a convention meet and let the convention go through the constitution and make recommendations to the people in referendums about changes. And I would suggest that there should be five big changes. I call them the five R's. We should firstly return to the constitution. We've become the most centralized federation in the world. No other federation is as centralized. The Canadian Federation was supposed to be centralized. Ours was mm -hmm. supposed to be state-based. It worked out the other way when it actually came to practice. No, no uh, federation in the world allows the central government to collect 80% of all the taxes, then give wow. back a lot of that to the states, but on conditions, telling them how to spend it. That's why we have this terrible mess in education. Mm. The, the Commonwealth is trying to run education. The states are trying to run it. They both really left it to the neo-Marxists who are changing the syllabus, who are lowering standards and who are infecting the, abusing the children with all sorts of silly ideas about uh, 
transgender fluidity and all sorts of foolish things. It is a complete mess. And that's one thing that's wrong with the, this, this Australia. We must return to the Constitution. We must reduce the powers and the taxes taken by Canberra. We should reform the political parties. That would be my third R. The parties receive enormous amounts of money from the taxpayer. For each vote, they get a certain amount of money. They get other money to play around with. They get exemptions from the privacy laws and the electoral laws. They're in a very favourable position. In return for that, just answering what uh, George Christensen was talking about, in return for that, they should be required to be open, transparent and democratic. If they don't want to be open, transparent and democratic, give up the money and give up the exemptions. They'd soon be completely become agree. open, transparent and democratic. I would hope mm. that they would move to primaries, as in America, because with primaries, you can't control the pre-selection by controlling who gets into your party. It's just the representatives. It's just okay. the... It's just the people, you, you vote in a primary in accordance with which party you support. You're registered as a Republican supporter or a Democrat supporter. That's how Trump got in. Interesting, it, interesting. The Republican okay. establishment didn't want Trump, but he got in because the, the supporters of the Republican Party wanted The him. problem of all this, of, of course, Professor Flint, is is that uh, all of these proposed uh, reformations and reforms reforms that you're proposing uh, directly jeopardise the, the careers and accumulated power of the people who would need to usher them in? That's why, that's why there has to be an enormous fuss demanding a convention. Hmm. We form new parties, for example. We try to get new people in. What happens? In the long run, some things improve. But we really have to change the institution and make it mm. make it so that there's much more direct democracy. We have representative democracy. We need more direct democracy. And that comes to my final two R's. Citizen-initiated referenda. We must have those, and they must be binding, as in mm -hmm. Switzerland. And we must yeah. have recall elections. In both of those cases... A petition of a certain number of electors would initiate a referendum. A petition of a certain number of electors would initiate a recall election. We would, the people would have much more control. It would make the politicians controllable 24-7. They'd realise that if they vote against the people, that the people would react by initiating referenda. Every three months in Switzerland, there are federal referendums. If people, if people petition for a federal referendum, there, there are some. People vote on them. Voting is not obligatory, but it ensures that the politicians know that the people are always there watching them and changing laws, changing interpretations, approving treaties. Treaties have to be approved of any significance by the people in Switzerland. You need much more controlled by the people. That's the only way that we're going to fix this up. And the politicians will only allow a convention if the people kick up an enormous fuss about it. We do have a petition about it, which uh, you very kindly put on uh, put on my program from time to time. 
If you would like to find that petition uh, for these changes that uh, Professor Flint is talking about, go to goodsource.news and uh, at and you'll be able to find uh, the contributors, I think it's called, or shows at the top of the uh, at the top of the website, and um, you will find the yeah shows linked to Professor Flint, and at the bottom of every single one of his articles is a, a link to that refer referendum. Uh, something else that um, I'd like to plug while we're doing so is uh, this Professor Flint's book. There's also a link on the Good Source website to getting this book. This will give you a whole lot more information about what he's talking about tonight. Uh, give us back our country, how to make the politicians truly accountable on every day of every month of and of every year, um, which which is really, really great. Uh, now, I, I do believe in democracy. Um, it's the worst form of government apart from all the others, and uh, it's um, in indeed... Uh, I think the best form of government we can have short of removing humans entirely from the <laughs> equation, uh, which I do believe will, will happen with the second coming of Christ. Uh, and if you don't believe in that, well, there's eight times as many prophecies about that as there were about his first coming, which is a fact of history. Uh, just a little religious trivia for you by the side. Um, so... Professor Flinch, uh, I love these options of of um, citizen-initiated referenda, as they do in Switzerland four times a year, just fantastic. And, of course, recall elections. We, we see that happening in California right now. Um, and as much as it sounds like it could be really annoying for politicians, uh, it's not successful very often, but it is a vehicle for the people to fire really, really bad uh, politicians. And one of the times it was successful was uh, in California when um, the governor was recalled to the ballot box before his term was up and uh, he was kicked out of office and Arnold Schwarzenegger was made the governor of California in his stead. And right now we have uh, Gavin Newsom being recalled as the governor of uh, California. And we we have um, oh, can't remember his name right now. I'm terribly sorry, uh, Larry Elder. Uh, apologies, uh, Mr. Elder, for forgetting your name. But Larry Elder, fantastic, strong Christian conservative black man, is is running. And hopefully, oh my, what what a wonderful hope for California, if uh, he was able to uh, to to be elected instead of Gavin Newsom, um, California might turn into a functional state um, once again. So, uh, well, we have gone a little bit over time, but this is uh, such a, a fraught topic and there's a great deal of um, <laughs> the overconfident uh, right-wing people um, coming up with all kinds of conspiracy fantasies and, and really doing us a discredit um, by uh, peddling them as... Uh, as uh, incontrovertible facts, um, but uh, appreciate you clearing this up for us tonight, that the Constitution, in fact, does not prohibit the states from uh, making laws to mandate medicines. Uh, we are going to have to uh, fight this politically with the peaceful, um, lawful means um, gathered to us and, and certainly the... Uh, 
the protest um, this Saturday worldwide uh, against uh, all kinds of oppressive coronavirus restrictions is something um, to be a part of. If you're going to be in Brisbane, I will be at the Brisbane uh, protest um, at 12 p.m. in the Botanic Gardens and the details of the other protests around Australia, as well as that one, links to the various grassroots organisations in each city are at the website worldwidedemonstration.com. Uh, let me tell you, this is the best way that I can think of of uh, getting an end to this tyranny the soonest. Battling this through the courts uh, is unlikely to be successful, certainly won't be quick or cheap. Um, and, uh, and yeah, uh, any further thoughts, uh, Professor Flint? Any thoughts you weren't able to get out before I interrupted you? Well, I, I do think we, we, we have to resist this. And this means uh, demonstrating and so on. We, we mustn't allow the politicians to abuse their powers. This would be unjustifiable completely. And I do think if people agree that the way to proceed is to try and change our representative democracy, which has been captured by the major political parties, cabals of power brokers who can troll the pre-selections, they've changed what the political parties originally were. What we have to do is to try and include an ingredient of direct democracy, as you find in California in relation to the recall elections, particularly as you find in Switzerland, where there are state, local and federal referendums possible every three months if people petition for them. So I, I think that direct democracy offers us a way in which we could do this, but it means we've got to force the hands of the politicians by an enormous demand for change. Mm. Yeah, look, um, uh, I mean it when I say democracy is the worst system of government apart from all the others, uh, as in not to be entirely sarcastic. I mean, there are some really big problems with democracy. Uh, right now, euthanasia is popular uh, and abortion um, does very well in the polls. You know, you can, you can get some really corrupt, perverted laws uh, in through the guise of pop, of popularity uh, in 18th century England, uh, I have no doubt that slavery was a very very popular um, legal policy in in that nation at that time. That the trade and and commodification of people, uh, mm. just appalling things that can happen in democracy. Uh, but I, I do think um, some some measures of direct democracy reforms that you suggest, Professor Flint, uh, are probably the best way to balance uh, the the excesses and abuses mm. of power and politicians um, that we are seeing. So uh, incredibly rapidly accumulating and hoarding power for themselves and to the extent of you know un just who would have thought last in the last decade, that uh, all our freedoms would be so grossly transgressed in, in this decade. Um, if this is progress, I don't want a bar of it. And so fragile. Mm, indeed. Well, thank you very much, Professor Flint. It's thank been you. a great pleasure to uh, pick your brain and uh, have your, your wise experience and uh, qualifications guiding us in our understanding of the Constitution and, and what solutions may be available to us 
to repair democracy this evening. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of uh, the Pello Talk show. The Pello Talk show, we normally just call it Pello Talk. If you would like to become a supporter, please head to goodsource.news and click on the button to support or donate. We also look forward to having you subscribe to our newsletters there where we can stay in touch. We're on Telegram, uh, YouTube, Instagram, um, and all of the other uh, social media channels, YouTube, Telegram, Insta, Twitter was one I forgot to mention. Uh, we look forward to sending you newsletters and uh, appreciate the good source supporters who chip in generously every single month to um, contribute to the ongoing work that we do here. Very much appreciated. Thank you very much. Uh, and one more time, if you can at all make it to the uh, Worldwide Day of Freedom this Saturday, I'd love to see Today, you there. Today, we need a special kind of courage. Not the kind needed in battle, but a kind which makes us stand up for everything that we know is right, everything that is true and honest. We need the kind of courage that can withstand the subtle corruption of the cynics, so that we can show the world that we are not afraid of the future.